0: This tells a story, and it's very rare that you can find a vessel from which you can extract all these different artifacts and essentially have a time capsule from 1875.
1: Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Quigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with Ron Irwin and Earl Bogert of the old B&I Circus store in Lakewood, Washington. And they talked about the store's promotional events that involved wild animals, celebrity visits, and parking lot spectacles. And in 1955, the B&I sponsored Burt Thomas to become the first person that we know of to swim 18 miles from the Strait of Juan de Fuca between Port Angeles to Victoria, British Columbia. Burt's feat is remarkable, when we consider that the Strait of Juan de Fuca is perhaps best known for shipwrecks. From Shipwreck Point near Siiku, you can head west into the Makah tribal community, centered in Nia Bay, and out to the furthest corner of Washington State at Cape Flattery, accessible only by foot or ship, and where you can spot an 1857 lighthouse illuminating the coastal edge of what is now known as the Graveyard of the Pacific Ocean. That lighthouse will also spotlight the stories of today's guests. They made headlines last month after finally discovering the Pacific Northwest's most significant shipwreck, the SS Pacific, which sunk to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in 1875. And both of today's guests are local underwater explorers. One has been searching for and finding sunken vessels since his childhood in the 1980s. And he's president of the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance, Our second guest has joined Rockfish Incorporated to search for the SS Pacific after operating underwater vehicles for the U.S. Navy. So today we'll explore how the region's most significant shipwreck was discovered 150 years later after decades of searching, and we'll explore why our guest today succeeded after others had failed. And the answer has more to do with shoe leather and ingenuity than with buying the latest technology. And finally, they say that all seafarers have a bond that crosses time and place. And so today, you'll get to hear firsthand stories from today's shipwreck search crew about connections between the living and those sleeping at the bottom of the ocean.
2: Let's drive around.
1: So let's welcome our guests today, Matt McCauley and Sarah Haberstrow. Thank you so much for being here. We're happy to be here. I wanted to start with, Matt, if you can just share a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up in the Seattle area, and how diving and underwater exploration factored in.
0: Yeah. Back in 1979, I had just finished junior high school. Um, There were two at the time on Mercer Island, one at the north end, very, very cleverly named North Mercer Junior High, and another one at the south end called, equally cleverly, South Mercer Junior High. And in those days, Mercer Island High was a three-year school. So for 10th grade, they dumped us all together. So I was in six period life-saving class. I was already a certified diver, and we had a lifeguard certification. And there was this tall kid in there from south whose dad had seen a Martin Mariner PBM-5 in 1949. when His dad had been out eating his lunch at Boeing Renton, sitting there by the lake. And along comes this big Navy flying boat across the surface of the lake, and one of the wing pontoons, hit a floating log that had broken loose from a log boom and the the wing pontoon broke off and it listed to the side. There were doors open on the plane, size of 737. It was a big flying boat and it filled with water, listed, went upside down and settled into 70 feet of water. So from the time Jeff was a kid, he'd heard his dad talk about this story and he had visions of recovering this plane, fixing it up and flying it. So he never lost track of that. And by 10th grade, he needed some divers. And I was the crazy guy who was the newly certified diver that would basically do anything with a scuba tank on my back. So we were a natural fit to become friends and work on projects together. And through high school, we did a lot of diving in the lake. We started out by, you know, yeah, looking for that plane, but we also would dive at the street end – steamer landings and Mercer Island in the east side, looking for old bottles and things from the 19th century, and kind of gained our skills looking for steamboat wrecks and some of the other things in Lake Washington, which is just a, its own treasure trove of fascinating objects and wrecks on the bottom. By the end of high school, we had developed some serious equipment, a side-scan sonar system, and naval air station seattle at sand point had been extremely active during world war ii and the period thereafter so as a result you had a lot of aircraft that crashed or ditched into lake washington but you also had some that had had hard landings that were stripped of their usable parts then used as fire training aids were then put on barges and taken out into the lake and just dumped so the navy had adopted a position that they would not relinquish ownership of operationally lost aircraft. And we knew that because as little geeks in high school, we were writing letters to the Navy on our you know Smith Corona electric typewriter with carbon paper, and you know they were answering us, no, you can't you can't do anything with these. But they said they didn't have any information on any that were dumped in the lake. Therefore, we assumed well they don't want any. And at '83, we found um, a barge load of stripped SB2C Helldiver dive bombers and Grumman F4F Wildcat fighters. That were in an area on the lake off Champaign Point near Juanita. And so we brought one up in 84 with the intent of selling it for restoration to a collector in Minnesota. And we didn't keep it a secret. King 5 came out and got video of us pulling the thing out at Magnuson Park at the boat ramp. Two young men who hope to be in on the salvage job. Ted Warren shows us tonight just how they find such buried treasure. And we had plans in place, and we were getting ready to transport it and, and sell it to this guy. And I had a knock, knock, knock at the door. And again, I'm 19 years old at the time. And there's a guy in a green leisure suit standing there with a big, thick stack of papers. So he said, are you Matt McCauley? And I said, yes. And he hands me this stack of papers. And I looked, and I read it. And the cover sheet said, the people of the United States of America versus Jeffrey Kenneth Hummel and Matthew William McCauley. Uh-oh. So the federal government had filed suit for us. This was a civil case. It was called something called an action in replubin, meaning it was an action to try to get the object back. And we ended up, over the course of a year, in a lawsuit that actually went to trial in the summer of 1985. And after two days, um, thanks to a pro bono legal team of three World War II vet prominent Seattle attorneys who were all um, veterans of the sea services during the Second World War, we were able to prevail in federal court uh, in front of John Kugnauer. And uh, we were awarded title to the airplane. We were able to sell it. But the, the Judge Kugnauer was very clear. The only reason we were awarded title was because the Navy had intentionally abandoned it. And had it been an operational loss, we couldn't have just picked it up and sold it. So based on that, we went back in 87 and pulled up the other two Helldivers and the other two Wildcats, sold those off to different private collectors and, uh, you know, we continued some diving projects and some some other things into the early 90s, but Jeff, Jeff kind of stuck with this and went into the marine field. I ended up, you know, getting my degree, going to law school, getting married, having kids, starting a different business. So while we stayed in touch and we're still very good friends and kind of involved in stuff and I'd lived on the East Coast for a while, we weren't, you know, connected the way that we had been. We were out diving every weekend. And so it was really Jeff who, um, starting in 85, 86, kind of, you know, we were first talking about the Pacific and it kind of went from there. So it was really his efforts from that entire time that led us into the Pacific stuff.
1: So, sir, you're a newcomer. You just arrived in the Northwest two weeks ago permanently. So tell us why you came here and what your background is.
2: Yeah, so my background is, uh, you know, I applied to colleges and whatnot, but couldn't afford it. College is kind of expensive. You need money. So I didn't really have another option. So I was like, well, I guess I'll join the military, right? Uh, and so, yeah, I joined the Navy. And then I was in the Navy for about nine years. Uh, my first tour was on a destroyer. So, you know, got, got burgered into going out on the ocean and doing deployments and that sort of thing. After that, I went to an EOD unit because I was like, oh, I want to I do something more tactical and go, like, you know, green. Green Gear Comms, I guess is what you would call it. And um, what's EOD stand for? Uh, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. So we were Explosive Ordnance Disposal Mobile Unit One, and that was uh, out of San Diego. So I was there for about I think five years. And uh, I, when I first got there, I just kind of sat in an office for my first year, and I was like, this isn't this isn't working for me, right? I was like, I need to I need to do something. I need to go and deploy. And so uh, I begged and borrowed enough, and they sent me to a underwater uh, vehicle school, so unmanned underwater vehicles, what the the military calls them. And so from there, I was able to learn that skill, deploy, went on deployment to Bahrain, Ford deployed to Djibouti and Oman, and, you know, did a couple little missions and whatnot and operations, and then uh, came back and I did that for about five years, got out of the Navy, um, and then I got asked, hey, do you want to uh, start up the program of record for the UUVs, Unmanned Underwater Vehicles, for the, uh, we love our acronyms, and Naval Special Warfare, NSW, <laughs> guys. So then, uh, yeah, this came up and uh, I got a call from Jeff one day.
1: How did it come up?
2: Um, so we had a mutual friend. Uh, so a so friend of a friend, and this is, I mean, gosh, like three or four years back. Jeff was looking for investors, and uh, so I was like, you know, what, whatever, I'm you know, single person. And if, I, if I lose some money, it's not a big deal. So I um, did that, and then, you know, just what, a couple months ago, November, uh, he called me up and was like, hey, so, you know, we think we found the thing, do you wanna come out with us? And uh, we just need to recover a piece of it, and that's really all we need to do. And so I was like, yeah, sure, why not? That sounds great. So went out as a ROV, Remote Operated Vehicle Pilot. And it was my first time diving on the Falcor is the name of the robot that we took out. And, uh, you know, checked out the bottom and you can see the ship and it's really cool. You're looking at the side skin imagery and, and uh, yeah, I was able to find something on the bottom, brought it up and it ended up being uh, an actual piece of wood from the wreck. So yeah, it was really, really awesome.
1: So, what is the connection between Rockfish Incorporated and the Northwest
0: Shipwreck Alliance? The Northwest Shipwreck Alliance was founded as a nonprofit entity. Uh, basically, Rockfish is a for profit entity that was used to finance the many millions of dollars required to make continual expeditions out off the coast to search for the wreck of the Pacific. Um, within Rockfish, there are investors that will receive a return on their investment based on the Express cargo is what it's called. That is to say uh, gold and things that are in in the ship's safe that were insured. All the relics and everything else that is found have been gifted to the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance. And one of the great things about that is it will keep the entire collection of relics intact. Those will not be sold. The goal is to keep them all in one collection that will be put on display in the Puget Sound area in hopefully a new maritime museum. So, you know, you won't see things like the the linens and the steamer trunks and the tools and the dishes and the various things that are likely to be uncovered from the wreck by Sarah um, showing up (laughs) on eBay. They're all going to be kept together.
1: And then why, in your opinion, is it important that all those items be kept together versus dispersed even to different museums? Well,
0: the reason is because this tells a story, and it's very rare that you can find a vessel uh, from which you can extract all these different artifacts and essentially have a time capsule from 1875. Jeff and I have long felt in m- most of what we've done over the decades that we are simply uh Conduits to be able to recover the history. So, for example, the World War II airplanes that we pulled out of Lake Washington are all in the process of being restored. They went to museums because we were in abil- we had the ability to pick them up and get them into the hands of people that could then display them to the public and show them to everybody. Likewise, in the case of the of the Pacific, it's a, a huge event in terms of local maritime history. Uh, we believe that we are simply the people to pick it up, but it's ultimately a cultural resource that belongs to the people of the Pacific Northwest. So we want to make sure it all stays together so that people, you know, hopefully decades down the road, little kids are going to do a field trip. They can see these things and still know what happened to these folks in a, in a wreck that is, for most people have been long forgotten.
1: Well, let's talk about the SS Pacific, the ship itself, and yeah. what is its history? Where did it begin?
0: Yeah. it was, uh, Keel was laid in 1850 in New York, and there were a lot of steamers that were being built in a rush at that time because you had 1849, you had the gold rush in San Francisco area. And in those days, to get to San Francisco, you had two choices. There was no transcontinental railroad, obviously. So you either go across the country in a covered wagon, which... It's pretty challenging, and if you can avoid it, it's good to avoid that. You can only do it at certain times of the year. The other way was to take a vessel to Central America, get out, go across the Isthmus, either Panama or take a small boat through the river up through Nicaragua, then catch a new steamer on the Pacific side and come up north into San Francisco. So there were a whole bunch of steamers built at that time, sidewheel steamers approximately 200, 250 feet long, in order to accommodate a lot of that traffic and the Pacific was one of them uh, spent a number of years running on that route from the East Coast down into Central America, out of various cities um, on the East Coast, and then was brought around the horn around South America on up to the Pacific side and spent the the rest of its life on the Pacific side of things, shuttling people from Central America up into California, and then a little bit later, uh, through various owners, different steamship companies, going up and down different routes on the West Coast, different parts of California and up into Victoria and into Puget Sound. Notably, by the 1870s, the Pacific was the first scheduled steamship to run between Puget Sound, specifically Seattle, and San Francisco. Which was incredibly important for the Puget Sound region, especially Seattle, because in those days, keep in mind, you know, at this point in time, you have under two thousand people living in Seattle, and Seattle looked like the set of you know gun smoke or something or dead wood. Um, it was nothing like the way it looks now—wood buildings and just very, very rugged. And San Francisco was civilization essentially. So that was the the area's connection, regular scheduled connection with civilization, it was reasonably fast. You'd have to wait on the wind because you had these two side wheels churning and churning to, to get you between different points. So the, the Pacific would serve um, Victoria, uh, Seattle, Port Townsend, and uh, Tacoma and waypoints in between to pick up grain or what have you. Most notably though, other than that, uh, the least routine voyage probably ever made by the Pacific, 1868. Uh, there, there was Seward's folly—the purchase of this vast expanse of land in the north. Um, they call it Seward's folly or the the Great Ice Box, and it was Alaska that we had purchased from the Russians. And uh, so you had a U.S. Army general who was in charge of the division of the Pacific, whose name was Halleck who had had been a prominent general in the Civil War, but sent out here as kind of a banishment. So he mounted an expedition to go up and inspect Alaska, and he hired the Pacific. And this newfangled technology called photography would be a great way to help record what he saw up there. So he hired an eccentric, brilliant, genius, but crazy photographer uh, who called himself Edward Muybridge, who who was an Englishman, To come up and take pictures. So we've got a wonderful series of pictures taken in various places in Alaska, often with the Pacific in the background. And they've been incredibly helpful for us because there aren't that many pictures of the Pacific out there. So one of my projects right now is putting together for Sarah a collection of these photos so she can understand As a reference, the the different details of the ship as best we can provide them to her. So if when she's out on site dealing with something on the bottom, she might be able to say, oh, wait a minute, I sort of recognize that from the steam engine or this or that. Because the average, most of us don't really understand what a walking beam side wheel steamer from the 1850s looks like, especially if it's broke up into pieces and then, you know, thousand plus feet of water in the bottom of the ocean.
1: So let's talk about the loss itself, when it went down, why it went down. What are the circumstances?
0: Well, it was making a routine call in the Puget Sound and Victoria area um, in November 1875. Uh, The captain was a 35-year-old brother-in-law. Of Jefferson Davis, who had been the president of the Confederacy during the Civil War, Uh, he was named after his brother-in-law because his older sister uh, was newly married about the time he was born in the 1840s, and her husband Jefferson Davis had been wounded in the war we had in 1847 with Mexico. So they weren't sure if he was going to live. So in his honor, they they named the in-laws named their New baby boy after after his brother in law, which explains the age difference, and he was uh, more or less raised by his older sister, and he grew up in the D.C. area. He was from the South, but he he was the kid of you know his uh, Jefferson Davis had been the Secretary of War, and he'd also been a congressman. So while Jefferson Davis was as a kid you know, yeah, he was a Southerner, but he was also fairly cosmopolitan. All of his friends were kids from other elected representatives' family, and he, you know, went to boarding school in New Jersey. Uh, So he, after the Civil War, had gone to sea, um, worked his way up, become a captain out on the West Coast, and had relatively freshly been awarded command of the Pacific. So the Pacific came into Puget Sound, went down to Tacoma, picked up some cargo down there, came to Seattle, picked up passengers and cargo, went to um, Everett area, picked up some more, over to Port Townsend, over to La then into Victoria. And in Victoria at the time, you had a major gold rush in what was called the Cassier district in uh, north, very Northwest BC. It's one of those gold rushes that most people don't even know about. But you had all kinds of miners flocking at the dock to get on the ship, To go down to um, San Francisco because that's, if you went to San Francisco with your gold, there were more um, businesses there that would do assay work so you could get a better value, better exchange rate essentially for your gold than the few that were up in Victoria. So a lot of these guys wanted to go down there to maximize the value of their gold. So you had miners, you had other individuals, prominent business people from Victoria and what became uh, Vancouver. Um, There was a a journalist who was the editor-publisher of what had been, the newspaper of the earth, which had been called the British Colonist, uh, named David W. Higgins. And he was on the dock that day and observed the whole thing. And he knew over a hundred of the BC area people who had been passengers on the ship. So one of the big questions is how many people were on the ship, because you had people rushing to get on. They weren't, it wasn't like the Titanic or something where everybody's name is taken and it's very dignified. They, they were giving away tickets at bargain rates just to get the people on the vessel. So nobody really knows how many were on board. Um, Higgins gives the highest estimate around 500, and that's maxing out. the the capacity of the vessel. It was so loaded that the ship's carpenters, after they got underway from Victoria, were making bunks in the open um, decks and salon areas uh, out of boards and things to give these people a place to sleep that had paid for higher level accommodations. Uh, Because it was an old ship, it wasn't in terribly great shape. It had been sort of refurbished by its owners with kind of putty and, and paint, but it was not in great shape and it was listing. As it was leaving Victoria so what the first mate did is he ordered the fire pumps to pump water into the lifeboats to level the vessel out but water in a lifeboat is not a really good idea later if something happens so they leveled the ship out and got the vessel underway headed out uh, around Cape Flattery begins to work to the south to go down to San Francisco meanwhile Coming from the south, headed north up to Nanaimo to take on coal, is an 1854-era uh, medium clipper called the Orpheus, commanded by a man named Sawyer, who was very new to the west coast. He was an old east coast clipper captain, described as a hard captain, which he, he was one of these guys that was hostile with the crew. It was kind of a vision, of kind of a Captain Bly character. And uh, he was new to the coast. They saw light. He mistook it for the light at Cape Flattery, ended up going across the course of the Pacific in a direction to the wind such that he lost the wind in his sail. So it pretty much put his ship dead in the water. The Pacific, Howell had retired and you only had two individuals, one at the helm and one the lookout, two men should have been as additional lookouts that for whatever reason the mate had not ordered them to do that so you didn't have visual contact from the steamer as you should have and by the time they realized they were going to crash into this ship it was too late they threw it into reverse essentially and tried to stop so at very slow speed they scraped across the side of the Orpheus tearing out the chains and some of the rigging which essentially made the Orpheus dead in the water but unfortunately for the Pacific, and largely we suspect because the condition of the hull was, was very soft, the hull was breached uh, from the contact and water started flooding in. So then you had people scrambling to get up on deck. You had a mad race for the lifeboats, but unfortunately the, the lifeboat davits, that mechanism, they hadn't had lifeboat drills so nobody really knew how to use them. Um, and they had been sort of you know painted over and people weren't familiar with them. But then even as they're figuring them out, they have water in them. So people are, you had one of these situations where the lower level of crew were themselves kind of panicking and throwing passengers out of the way. There were a number of Chinese miners, Chinese nationals, who had just bought um, steerage type accommodations, meaning just wherever they could pitch a, a blanket to lay down, they would lay down. And some of these guys had gone into the floor of some of the lifeboats and they threw some of these these crewmen threw them out into the ocean to make way for, for white passengers. It was mayhem. Um, they were knocking male passengers out of the way to you know, it was it was nuts. And so they had great difficulty getting these boats off. A couple of them actually did get off, but as the ship was listing, smokestack came off. So you had one that was sort of afloat. Smokestack goes down into the water, but it, it had so much water in the lifeboat that the splash from the smokestack swamped, it, and You had the people in the water. Another one that was actually kind of nicked when it went down. So everybody that made it into a boat, the few that were, were, made it off, were sunk. People were swimming, and then they started going down. Because you had, in the case of women, they were, they, in those days, they were wearing a lot of layers of clothing, and so they would go down pretty quickly. You had people clinging to wreckage sort of floating around, the the ship went down rather quickly. Some of the the two survivors thought that it broke in half. More likely what happened is the rush of cold water coming in, coming in contact with the boiler, um, caused a a rupture and it sort of sounded that way and it was sort of breaking up. The paddle wheels broke off separately and it kind of came to pieces, but I don't know that it actually broke in half, but there were pieces floating around. So the largest collection of passengers got onto the piece of the hurricane deck where the pilot house was located. But the other problem is after this thing is broken up and sinking and you got some people in the water, the weather turned really bad. You were pounded by a storm that was sort of comparable to the early 1960s Columbus Day storm that we had around here that lasted for a couple of days. So not only were these people that had managed to survive bobbing around, then they're getting nailed by the winds, the high seas, the freezing cold rain. Again, you're 50 or so degree water. And those that had been clinging to the the main piece of wreckage of the hurricane deck, one by one, started dying and sliding off. Until the the last guy left on that wreckage, there was a quartermaster, 21-year-old quartermaster named Neil Henley. And then there was a 22-year-old member of a Canadian Pacific Railroad survey team who had been involved in looking for transcontinental railroad route, who also had separately been clinging to a piece of wreckage. And the, uh, the quartermaster, Henley, was on the longest. It took him, he was at sea for 78 hours before he was picked up in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So you imagine being in 50 degree water for 78 hours. It's a miracle that either of them survived. But they were the only two that made it. Everybody else went to the bottom.
1: So whose fault was it?
0: Well, there was an inquest. There were two inquests. The better inquest was the Victoria Corridor. That was the cleanest one. And they had no jurisdiction, though, to do anything. It was Canadian, it was American vessel, American waters. The San Francisco proceeding, the San Francisco inquest, the the proceedings were sealed. And you essentially had the, the agency that had signed off on the seaworthiness of the hull and machinery, sort of investigating itself. So it's one of those old things. We've investigated ourselves, and we found out we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, so nothing ever came of it. There, there was no compensation paid to any of the surviving families. You had a, a tragedy, a series of tragic events that that occurred because of people dying on the Pacific. There were suicides of spouses, uh, problems from you know people. You know, in the eighteen seventy-five, if dad dies. There's not a safety net system for mom and the kid. I mean, there's just all kinds of bad things happen to people because of that. So it was long remembered um, in the area. Practically everyone in Puget Sound or Victoria had some connection to someone who died on the Pacific.
1: You said it was like 9-11 in a way, in yeah, the sense, it, the magnitude of it.
0: Yeah, for, for our area. And, and there were tons of people, you know, that became prominent later that were almost stories of them almost being on the ship. And for one reason or another— didn't but yeah it was uh, it was a huge disaster for such a small population here at the time
1: well let's talk about the search it sounds like from what I've read you're not the first people to be searching for the SS specific so what is the history there?
0: The first expedition we know of was about 1985. There was a restaurant tour from Santa Monica, California, that put a bunch of money together, got investors. Young Jeff actually tagged along. Let the, He let Jeff go. Um, I helped on the beach. At the time, I was working for a marine geophysics company as a, as a college student um, out in Redmond called uh, Nortech Northern Technical Services, and they leased a whole bunch of the equipment. So I got to help put a lot of that stuff together out on the beach. Um, there've been a number of these other, you know, kind of big dollar, big investor kinds of expeditions because it's it's one of the wrecks that's kind of top some of the lists of shipwrecks that you really want to find and they would go out, they would look, not find anything this period of, you know, 20 20 years different ones came and went. But Jeff, he was involved in selling marine electronics and just was out on the coast talking to fishermen. So he started talking to fishermen about what are called hangs, which are obstructions on the bottom. That, and they keep record of these because nets are expensive. You don't want to hang your net up on something that that may cost you your net. So they keep records of those. In the earlier days uh, with Loran Sea navigation, and then of course GPS comes in and it suddenly gets a lot easier. And he started talking to these guys about hangs and one of them starts talking about finding some coal one time. So he started pursuing this, just talking to fishermen and diners and places along the coast at the little working docks and what have you until he he tracked down a guy that had found a fair amount of coal. Um, He had gone through a divorce 10 years earlier, and he didn't think he had it anymore. And sure enough, the ex-wife had it in his storage locker that she was still paying on for 10 years for his stuff. And he had the coal analyzed chemically and found out it was from – a coal mine at Coos Bay, Oregon, which was actually owned by the owners of the Pacific, Godell Nelson Shipping. So he was able to correlate the location of this coal with the high likelihood that it had been part of the Pacific. That helped him really narrow the search with the side scan equipment. So he started pinning it down. It's kind of a tricky area bottom to search. And you can't hit this thing from every angle and, and see it. That's why some of the people missed it too. So it was a real tricky target to be able to to find, but he he knew where to really focus his search because of that coal, which is pretty remarkable. None of these competing groups got out and did the shoe leather you know at the greasy spoon diners at five a m in the fishing towns to be able to talk to these guys and who were very free with their information gave him all kinds of stuff and he got 1850 era charts that were the charts that would have been in use in 1875. He examined the current tables and the winds, and I mean, just he did a really, really thorough analysis. So it all fit together. But that's another thing then these other groups did is putting together these kinds of little extraneous links. They sort of thought they could come down, lease a bunch of equipment, do their offshore survey, and just find it, and it wasn't that easy.
1: I'd love to talk about the oceanography of this particular part of the state. You know, the coastline and why there are a lot of shipwrecks historically. It seems like the guy that swam across did it in June or July, probably for a reason. So there's probably weather patterns and so forth. And so for Sarah, you've traveled the world and probably seen all sorts of underwater conditions. Oh, absolutely. You know, and obviously Matt, you're born and bred here, and you got your apprenticeship in lakes versus deep ocean. But what what is it um, about the Pacific Coast that makes it a graveyard for boats?
2: Well, you, you have, like, these crazy, like, tidal currents here, right? So, you, and then you have, like, your, like, storm-driven currents, I guess, also. So when you have you know, all these different currents and then you have tons of fresh water that's also pouring into the ocean, it makes, like, this, like, super treacherous, I guess, area of, you know, navigating through when you're on the ocean. So uh, that's why I think out here you have so many shipwrecks in this particular area.
1: I heard the Columbia is also dangerous because it has velocity and can create waves. Yeah, you know for you've,
0: you've got the Columbia River bar down there too, which historically has just been <laughs> deadly. Um, ships will get in the wrong position on that bar. That's why they have the pilot boats that would bring people in across the bar because it was very difficult to to navigate and many a ship was crunched up in there. Um, also here, you know, in addition to the mouth of of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, You know, ships will get blown up into Barkley Sound. That bottom up there is littered with with wrecks up in the Canadian waters, too. So you've got brutal weather, and you've had a lot of shipping going through, particularly in an era where they didn't have, you know, navigation, equipment, electronics, and and things like that. So inevitably, because of those things, you end up with a lot of them going to the bottom, sadly. (laughs) ¶¶
1: Sir, can you share your first time that you encountered it visually, that you first saw it underwater?
2: Oh, it was so cool. So the first time was in November, actually. And so Jeff goes down with the ROV and he's showing me, you kind of have like reference points. So like when Matt said, like having those images, it's actually really useful because then you can create reference points and see like what, what's on the ship that you still might be able to recognize now. So when we go down, you know, you pick it up on side scan and it's so obvious, right? Because if, if, if you studied side scan for like any amount of time and and you can decipher those, those images, then you know, like, oh yeah, that's, that's a ship on the bottom of the ocean floor. Like, it's, it's obvious. And, and he's like, he's like yeah, but, you know, well, do you know how long it took us to get, to get this? Like, you know, how, how much effort went into it? And the first, like, little blurb that they had on the, on the toad side scan looks really like, like nothing. It's, it's, you know, if anybody looked at it, they'd be like, okay, yeah, so what? You know, that, that's nothing. But, but to, to Jeff and the crew, they were like, oh, no, really, that's something. So then when they see it on, on uh, the, the better side scan, you can obviously tell that it's a ship. Yeah, really, really neat, and uh, yeah, and when when he showed me, then then you can see, uh, you know, there's like little critters on the bottom. And you can see like kind of, you know, where the hall is and, and everything that's, you know, covered with, with you know sediment, but you can you can tell what it is, and it's it's really really awesome, yeah.
1: So let's talk about the technology that was used, and maybe Sarah can comment on that. So there's a human story, right? Obviously, Jeff was willing to just talk to people in fishing towns and piece together data from coal that was saved, but there's also technology that was important to the process. Can you kind of bring us under the tent in terms of the sort of technological story?
2: So you have these devices that's a, for this, they use a towed device. So pretty much you're, you're towing this big device that's putting out sound, right? And so it puts out these pings and every ping you get a return. And so that return will be different based on what material it is. So say um, say I'm looking for something metal on the ocean floor, you're gonna have a really bright return from that, from that noise you're putting out. Uh, if it's like a silt, you know, silt bottom type, it's just going to soak up that noise, right? And you're going to have like a dull return. So whenever you're looking at sonar, you're looking for, for those bright returns. Um, so a bright return would indicate uh, like a man-made object or something made of metal. Uh, you do get a return from wood, not so great, right? Because wood is porous. So it does, it kind of soaks up the sound, right?
1: Do whales use... Is this anything like oh, whales certainly. do?
2: Just like that. That's that's great. Yeah, just just like how whales put out, you know, this noise in the water, or you know, as sharks have their own kind of like sonar. I guess you could they say, do? right? So they have like, you know, to be able to see uh, where they're going, and uh, or bats. We use bats a lot when we're comparing sonar and when we're when we're teaching about sonar because that's what bats do, right? They put out sound to, to be able to see where these bugs and, and whatnot are. So so yeah, same, same exact thing with with side scan. So uh, the first thing that was used was a was a toad side scan. So it's just behind the ship and you, you do this thing called you mow the lawn, right? So you have a big area that you want to cover and you just you, you plot you're playing your tracks and you just drive up and down, up and back, back and forth, and then you have somebody sitting there that's looking at at the data as it's coming through. So it's called the waterfall. So it's just sonar data that's that's up coming up on your screen, and you're just you're you're looking to see you know if there's any of those bright returns, and then you're also looking at the sam- the size right. So if the ship's sitting this way and, and you're hitting it with these with these light beams, you're only seeing this you know, this one face of the of the ship right. So that might not be a, a huge target. So so that maybe it's only like five meters that you're that you're getting these returns off of. Uh, but as soon as you hit it from a different direction, now you're getting return off of this entire area. So you can actually see the size of the ship. So you know you do have to cover a huge area when you're doing a, a towed sonar. But you also have to do it from from different perspectives, right? So you might have to go and you hit this area. Okay, we didn't see anything. Well, now let's let's turn everything ninety degrees and do the whole thing over again. So it's really time consuming, and it's it's a, a lot of effort to to find something like this in that big of an area. And so. Um, you know, if you go on the website, you can see these little, all these little plots, and, and it's kind of cool because it shows the different, like, little squares of, of where they covered. And you can see, like, okay, well, they thought it was here, but really, you know, it was it was pretty far out of where he originally had thought because of, you know, I like, think, these crazy currents uh, from the day. So, so it's
1: very time consuming work, it but it is, sounds yeah. like the coal, like, that, doing that type of detective work allowed you to focus in a relatively focused
0: area.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And but even
0: then, it was in a lot Even of,
2: then, it's still a huge area to cover. Again.
0: How big? It's a pretty good size area. I mean, there's a lot of real estate out there to look at, as she's describing as mowing the lawn, where you're just going, you know, making systematic passes.
2: Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah, so after, you know, he found the location or what he thought was was the ship, then, um, you know, went down and explored that area with the ROV. So he, he developed all of these like really cool devices and like this camera sled and these different things that you could pull along the bottom to pretty much like catch anything. So he did actually catch something and he caught a fire brick. And so at first he was like, oh, great, a brick and kind of like threw it. Oh, he didn't throw it away. Thank goodness. But he just like put it to the side and didn't really think anything of it. Well, then, you know, when he looks at it, he was like, oh, wait, there's actually like a little marking on this. And then the one side's like, you know, completely burnt. That's weird. And from Matt's story earlier, remember, there was kind of a I don't know if it was explosion would be the right term. But but there was, you know, something that happened and and it was a firebreak from the boiler. And uh, so, yeah, so he had that piece also. So now we had, you know that piece to go off of. And then we went down with the ROV and we were able to get the piece of wood, but they also have explored, you know, there's a debris field. And so there's all like, you know, these other components that are, that are linked together. And, and so it's really cool to see the debris field and then the ship and you can tell, you know, where everything kind of ended up and, that also tells a story, right, because it's like, okay, well, at some point the ship was here, you know, all of these things fell off, these paddle wheels, the spokes, and then the ship itself ended up here. So you can tell a lot by by how, you know, how fast the ship went down, you know, so it's it's pretty cool.
1: What does ROV stand for?
2: Remote Operated Vehicle.
1: And what is it in simple terms?
2: So an ROV is is you have something that's tethered to the ship, right? So we use the the sea blazer is the platform we operate off of. And so uh, you have this long, uh, we call it an umbilical and a tether. So a long umbilical that kind of goes to uh, where the ROV itself is deployed from, right? Because we're talking really deep waters. How deep? So upwards of like, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 feet. So uh, you get this cage, you call it to, to close to the bottom, and then you can deploy the ROV from there, and then you have a tether that links the two, and then you get real-time data that's going through, and you can just drive the ROV around and, and explore the ocean, and it's, it's super cool. <laughs>
0: Now one thing too that's that's very cool that they're doing is they are building on land workstations from essentially from big cargo containers in Port of Seattle. So Sarah and her team of people will be able to stay right here in Seattle, work around the clock if need be and do their work here with the screens and everything as if they were on the boat. And so you're still going to have people out on the boat deploying the vehicle and doing the you know the various stuff like that. But you're not going to have a whole bunch of other bodies out there losing sleep and getting seasick and having to, you know, share heads with, you know, a bunch of guys and all these kinds of things. It's it's just a lot more efficient to be able to do it that way from here, from land. So she gets done, you know, she can go back home and, you know... Eat dinner. Hang out with my dog. Yeah, Yeah, logistically speaking,
2: it totally makes sense, right? Because you just have to have the ship's crew out there, maybe like one or two technical people that can repair the ROV when it breaks. You know, these things, if you're out in the ocean, everything breaks. You know, you always bring two as one.
0: Yeah.
1: What's the communications method between the – um, uh, so we use, start, we use oh. Starlink, yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, and uh, so, yeah, it, it works, you know, really well. We, we looked at a lot of different tests that, that people have done with Starlink, you know, off of a ship specifically. And, you know, it's really important to not have a ton of lag time when you're driving these things around. And when now it's like everything is to such a greater scale because you have to be so careful with these artifacts. So um, one of the reasons that I think the group of people that are doing this are, are the group people that are doing this are because they really care about the actual artifacts that are down there. And it's funny because now we're gaining attraction. Like, um, one of our new guys we just hired, he said, yeah, I've been offered different shipwreck opportunities in the past, but this is the only one that's really cared about preserving the history and keeping the artifacts intact. So it's a really cool project, but it does like, you have to make sure your technology matches that, you know, you can't just go down and have your little grabber tool and pick up a coin because now you, you can scratch it or damage it. So you you have to like develop all of these tools that that are able to to do that. And you know, otherwise Matt will come after us if, if we <laughs>
1: damage it. So par- apart from so. Matt Matt's whip, what is it about this group that um, causes them to have a level of care over the artifacts and preservation that's different from other discovery processes?
2: Well, Jeff has developed you devoted his whole life to this project, right? So this is this is literally like his life. This is what he's been doing for 40 plus years, um, is this specific project and looking for the SS Pacific. So, you know, and, and working with him, he's just a really like a a person you want to work with and and you want to like, he's great. He's like, you can trust him. You know, he has a great group of people around him. He's networked so much throughout his life that he just like knows everybody, he knows everything, he knows what's going on. And then like, it's that challenge, right? Everybody wants to be challenged mentally. And so this is like such a challenge. It's so hard. Like, you know, and every day I'm like showing up to work and I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I know nothing. Like, I feel like I have to like, like just take in all of this data and and try to, you know, try to solve this huge problem. And, you know, so taking like small pieces of it and being able to do something to scale is it's awesome. Everybody wants a challenge, right? So this is this is really attractive.
1: How much profit is there? How much? I mean, it sounds like it's, there's a lot. There's gold under there. You'll, Sarah, you might be the first one to see it.
2: Hopefully, yeah. yeah. I hope so soon this year. Is there
1: <laughs> any sense of how much gold?
0: Not really, because you have gold that was insured, that was part of the express cargo. But then you have individual miners who in many cases would have been carrying it on their own. And there's no way of knowing. And that's part of the, the trick is going to be to get out there and, you know, she's fooling around with metal detector coils and things for vehicles to be able to search the area to be able to, to find that on the bottom down there because some of it can be spread around. So, we don't really know, and we're it, you kind of have to hesitate to to make projections because there weren't great records kept. We have we have an idea of what was insured, but then what were the individual ca- passengers carrying? Anyone's guess really.
1: And then what if human remains are found?
0: It's unlikely that that will happen because the way calcium dissolves in in seawater at that um, at that depth. But if it does. If we are to find something like that, then um, there will be plans in place. The jurisdiction will be the nearest uh, county sheriff there on the Washington coast. They're, you know, coordinate through them. And then also we would be looping in the Victoria coroner because they have an open investigation on it still from 1875. And a lot of those folks were, were Canadian nationals. Um, they would likely, because your average county coroner, doesn't have the budget to have the equipment to be able to do anything with remains in those kind of water depths, would, would probably ask us to recover them um, and hand them over to them if that even happens at all. But the odds of it aren't really super high.
1: Right. And you had mentioned some of the bodies were washed ashore. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yeah. There are some terrible stories. There was an equestrian team that had uh, performing horses. And they're, they they would educate people how to uh, have your have your horses uh, take your buggy around without reins. That was kind of their their little niche. And they would give classes and put on expeditions. And uh, they had a horse that was so beloved, so well trained, that one of them died saddling the horse to get the horse out of the ship. And they went down into the hole to save the horse. And they saddled the horse. And the horse's body was found floating with the saddle on there. And we think the person likely... Probably was going to saddle the horse up and then get on the horse and try to get the horse to swim into land, not really understanding where they were. But it was touching that one of their first impulses was try to save this this animal, that they had you know, such an important part of their lives. Uh, there's a young lady from Victoria named Fanny Parker who's only 18 years old. And it was so odd because all these bodies are blown around all over the place and some never found again, some washing up various places, the Washington coast, straight to de Fuca, Vancouver Island. Um, she actually was carried by the current, her, her remains, all the way down the Strait of Juan de Fuca and washed ashore on the north side of San Juan Island, practically within eyesight of her family home in Victoria. So it was just really odd that she ended up practically washing back up where her mom and dad lived.
1: So we asked her guys to bring an object to share today. What did you bring Sarah?
2: So I couldn't bring my dog here, but... (laughs) I do have this little i don't have much because so i did drive out here from wisconsin like literally just in my vehicle and with my dog and nothing else so i don't really have a lot of like material items uh but this one it's it's important because it is my dog and i love my dog but also my friend made it for me and so it's like a nice reminder of you have like these friends that do these really awesome things for you and so it's kind of like cool and also i love my dog so it's nice and then um I just have this, like, it's like a really cheesy little quote book, right? And I literally just look at the front and the back. <laughs> so I say, I read it cover to cover, but not really. It's just the front and the back. But it just, it, I like I like these ones a lot. And, and it, it just reminds me of, like, this whole project because it is such a difficult project. But it is, the front says, it always seems impossible until it's done so really just obvious and then pursuing a dream is hard work and those are important just because like some days you just wake up and you're like oh man i don't want to do it like i don't i don't want to have to like use my brain this much today and try to think of this and it sounds so stupid and silly but but it's like a nice little reminder that's like hey it is hard work but it's still your dream so you just got to like keep pushing through so
1: thank you and what did you bring to share
0: i brought a copy The Mystic Spring. This was a book written by David Higgins, who was the publisher editor of The Colonist. And it's an odd collection of different stories. He came to um, what was then British North America in 1858 uh, when there was a, a gold mining rush on with associated with the Fraser River. And so this is a, a series of his recollections and observances, and it's a, it's a weird book, but he has a whole chapter about the Pacific. This was published in 1904, and it was still clearly a source of great emotional upset to him. Um, he describes what he saw um, his, his feelings about it, and it's, it's very somber. And one of the things that makes it kind of important to me is to remember these are the people that died. On this, that this isn't just a target on the bottom like a World War II plane where nobody died and we're going to bring it up. It's going to be really cool and go to a museum. This is also a place that is intertwined with all these people that Higgins and others saw who, who died. I mean, there's poignant references in there. He closes it. He's tortured. 1904. All this many years after, after 1875. He's talking about a little boy who he helped get on the ship, and he's 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 haunted by the image of of that little boy drowning that many years later as anybody probably would be. But you forget that when you're just viewing something as a target. So keeping this sort of thing in mind as you move forward to keep that level of respect for what's going on down there in the bottom, I think is important. (laughs) ¶¶
1: And we ask our guests to share a place that matters to them in the Pacific Northwest and wondered if you had.
2: Gosh, yeah, I haven't (laughs) been here that long to, I mean, we were in the Olympic National Forest, you know, and we stayed out there for the weekend. And, oh, my gosh, it's so gorgeous. I can't wait till the summertime and explore and do some hiking out there because it's just, like, unreal. It's so, yeah. that's. It's it's, the world's only
1: temperate rainforest. It's It's a remarkable place.
2: It really, really is. So I think I'm going to spend a lot of time there in the next couple of years.
1: Awesome. How about
0: Matt? Mine is weird. I would have to say that mine is the bottom of Lake Washington. And I've been swimming with a mask since I was a little kid at to Beach, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, then snorkeling, and then finally scuba diving by 1979. But, you know, you and I are a comparable vintage, and we've seen enormous change in this area within our lifetimes over in. Kirkland, for example, the pastures I used to play in as a little kid were uprooted and turned into subdivisions with, you know, late 1960s, early 1970s, tacky split-level houses. And now I'm at a stage where a lot of those have become teardowns and have kind of aged out. So there's been rapid change very quickly through my life. But the one thing about Lake Washington and the bottom of the lake is it looks exactly the same way now as it did when I first saw it. So it's one of those little reference points for me where there's been literally no change at all throughout my entire lifetime.
1: Is there anything down there that you would like to find that you haven't found yet?
0: There are some things probably that we would like to find, but there are some things that we have found that we haven't brought up yet. One of your guests a couple of episodes back, David Williams, was talking about the coal cars, for example. Um, We've done a lot of ROV work in, on those. These are these are coal cars that coincidentally sank in the lake in 1875. They rolled off the end of a barge in a big in a big storm. We'd like to recover a couple of those for appropriate museums. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting things still on the bottom of the lake. Everything from. Twelve hundred year old trees, to the coal cars, World War II planes, all all kinds of things. Steamboats from the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. It's it's a it's a great place for relics too because it's fresh water, it's dark, it's low oxygen, so things have a tendency to stay pretty well preserved.
1: And I love the fact that you were confronted by the U.S. Navy, and now we have someone who just left right sitting next to you. I think
0: it's great. (laughs) I do.
1: (laughs) Great. Well, thank you both for being our guests today, Sarah and Matt. Thank you. Yeah, what a pleasure. Okay. The years of to follow matt and sarah's progress raising the ss pacific visit northwest shipwreckalliance.org here you can also learn about their educational programs for schools as well as their open source tools which you can use to recover your own underwater treasures join us next time for a conversation with graphic artist art chantry a national treasure whose work personifies the outsider ethos often associated with the Pacific Northwest. Chantry, who claims to be more archaeologist than artist, advocates for a low-tech approach to design, one informed by a fluid and all-consuming appreciation for what he describes as American trash culture. Art's prolific production encompasses logo and magazine design. He was art director for the Seattle-based music biweekly The Rocket in the 1980s. But he is best known for the posters and album covers for bands such as Nirvana, Mudhoney, and Soundgarden, associated with a Seattle-based record label, Sub Pop, and with the bands associated with Estrus Records in Bellingham. And while Chantry insists that his designs, identifiable by bright colors, wild lettering, and ostensibly slapdash, but carefully considered color registration, are merely pop culture artifacts and not fine art, they have nevertheless been exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art, the Seattle Art Museum, the Smithsonian, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and at the Louvre, So to learn more about the paradoxical art chantry, you'll have to join us next time on Power of Place. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther, with photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Barbour, and theme music written by Tomo Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway, with additional music written by Andrew Weathers, as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to share your stories.